Movies entertain. Entertainment leads to emotions. Those emotions connect us to our enjoyment of film. And that is why we exist, to focus more on the emotional connection than the technical merit. Because every movie makes us feel something. Hello, listeners, and welcome to another episode here at Feelin' Film. I'm Patch, and with me, as always, is my best friend and co-host, Aaron. Ho, ho, ho! There it is. I was hoping somebody <laughs> would say it. It's definitely that time of year. <laughs> and, uh, you know, this time of year, we try to cover a Christmas movie that we both really enjoy, because if we were covering anything else, that would just be weird. Uh, and whether it's a classic, like It's a Wonderful Life, or a more modern flavor, like Arthur Christmas both of which you can find in our library of episodes past. This year, we go back to another classic, but one that has a couple of iterations in its narrative history. We're talking about Miracle on 34th Street, and specifically recovering the edition starring Natalie Wood. So if you haven't had a chance to check this one out, I'm pretty sure the spoiler alert is uh, what it's expired at this point. It was like 1947 when this one came out. Yeah, 1930s. I think it's almost been 100 years now. It's, it's close, 80 it, years. It, yeah, anyway. But uh, make sure you see that, come back and join us for this conversation because we will be talking full-on spoiler stuff. So this is your official warning, and here we go. Aaron, would you like to start off with your one-word takeaway? I would, and I suppose that you just made it clear that we are covering the older film. I know you said the one starring Natalie Wood, but for any of you listening that for some reason are still listening and haven't seen either one of these, we are not talking about the new movie. We are talking about the old black and white original Miracle on 34th Street. It was colorized at one point, but that's blasphemy and we don't watch that one. We do not watch that one. I completely (laughs) agree with you. Well, my one more takeaway, Patrick, is faith. This film has long been a favorite of mine, and I think primarily because of its thematic exploration, but also its wonderful acting and its brilliant courtroom-based examination of Santa Claus's existence. It is impossible to watch this and not immediately start to question your own beliefs around Santa Claus. Basically what you've been told growing up as a child and then ultimately I think faith in all aspects of your life, be it fairy tale stories that you believe in or things of a religious nature. And the way this story pays off having faith is something that I also very much appreciate and that's what makes it more than just a fun Christmas movie but it's one worth digging much deeper into. Yeah, I agree. And faith is definitely one that came to mind for me. But the word that I really pulled out from this one was acceptance. And I started thinking about the different characters and how they all kind of approach this notion of Santa Claus's existence or is Chris the real Santa Claus? And what I come to find out is that when we look at the main characters, how they relate to each other in light of this big revelation, this big discovery, this big kind of thing that's happening there seems to be a level of acceptance with a person's belief in something. And I think that, I I guess today's word would be tolerance. I don't necessarily like using that word because it kind of has a negative connotation. But there's a sense of acceptance in a sense of understanding worldviews without necessarily agreeing with it. And that ties in nicely with what you're talking about because faith for you and I is definitely 
a significant part of our DNA. I mean, we have a specific set of beliefs. We have a faith that drives the day-to-day decision-making and how we look at the world around us, how we raise our children, how we just interact with one another and, and those people in our lives. But I think on the other end of that, there's a sense of acceptance in the fact that not everybody else shares that same belief. Not everybody else shares that same kind of faith. But there is a level of acceptance in saying that they have a faith of some kind. I think that it's tr- it would be a true statement to say that everybody believes in something. And in the case of Miracle on 34th Street, there are those that will always believe that in this world, Santa Claus does not exist. And there will be those who always believe that Santa Claus does exist. There's a level of faith with that. Some of it's proven, some of it's not. And the fact is, I think both of these words really help tie a nice bow around what this movie is trying to do. And that's help us to understand what it means to have a genuine faith in something and to accept those beyond just what they believe and what they don't believe, but the fact that they are human beings and they are valued. And specifically, I pulled that out this time around, which is something that I didn't expect. And it was a, it was a nice accept or expectant, expect unexpectedness. Is that, oh yeah, there we go. That's the word. (laughs) Well, first up, this is a movie that is a staple for a lot of folks around the holidays, but I wanted to kind of make sure that we were on the same page or if we're on different pages that we were at least accepting of one another when it comes to those things. Is this a, is this a staple for you around your house? No, not in the sense that it is an every year viewing without fail. I watch it probably once every two to three years. There's no real rhyme or reason to it, though. I mean, it's not that I choose not to because I don't like it, clearly. It's just not something that I typically rewatch on a seasonal basis. And that's more about me and my viewing habits than it is about the movie itself. I know many people do that. They rewatch certain movies during seasons or during holidays, but outside of It's a Wonderful Life, I can't tell you another movie. And uh, Nightmare Before Christmas around Halloween, those are the only two kind of given rewatches that I like to do every single year. I'm just not as big on that as most people. I like to watch new movies so often. And there are a ton of new movies. Every year I feel like, uh, at the very least, the Hallmark Channel bombards us with like hey here's those don't count well whether or not they count they're still there and they occupy at least one half of this family's time when cable is part of our world but when it's not which is in the case like this year um we have actually gone back to some of the older movies that we both individually grew up watching white christmas is one of my wife's favorites she loves to watch it every year i am really more akin to watching the modern stuff. I start every holiday season, every, and I say holiday in the, the Christmas season, with Elf. That's usually the first one I watch for some reason. I always just kick off Christmas with that one. Miracle on 34th Street, though, is interesting for us because it's one that we try to watch Thanksgiving Eve. And this year, we actually got a chance to do it. We didn't get a chance to last year. Um, we go to my, my in-law's house in Chattanooga, for Thanksgiving and so this year we actually got a chance to watch it and I started thinking about why why is the reason that we watch this and part of it is that of course the movie starts on Thanksgiving 
So you got the Macy's parade, you got Chris uh, standing in for for Drunk Santa, who I think probably should have won an Oscar for that performance because that was pretty amazing. But I, in preparation for the podcast, I started thinking about the movie as a whole and we, we jokingly talk about what movies are actually Christmas movies and what aren't. And um, later this month, we're going to get a chance to talk about one of those movies that <laughs> divides the universe in whether or not it's a Christmas movie or not in the uh, form of Die Hard. But I, as I was reading uh, to prep for tonight, there was an argument made that this is actually a Thanksgiving movie. And I don't quite agree with it, but I agree with some of the points and the fact that it focuses on being thankful for what you have and, and accepting of people. And I, I think it's a stretch to say that it's a Thanksgiving movie because the fact is it takes place all the way up through the Christmas season and finishes out on Christmas Day. But I do think there's some merit in understanding the fact that this movie really does focus on um, things like what we're thankful for. Um, and it focuses on the fact that Thanksgiving as a holiday is one of those where we are focused less on being cynical and more on being hopeful. But then again, you can make the same argument for Christmas. So I'm going to call it a holiday movie because when we talk about the holidays, we incorporate Thanksgiving and Christmas and possibly New Year's in that. But nonetheless, it's always going to be one of the two or three that my wife and I watch together um, to kick off the official holiday season. I'll do Elf on my own. And then um, Home Alone gets in there somewhere, but it's of the of the old school ones. This is one that really stands out to me for the same reasons that I think It's a Wonderful Life stands out for you, and the fact that it has those heavier themes of faith and hope and understanding why we believe what we believe within this this narrative context. And it's a movie like It's a Wonderful Life that makes a nice comparison. And both are considered the faith-based films. We talked about that on on our episode when we covered that a, a few, I guess, a couple of years ago. It's been a little bit, right? Um, so when we look at Miracle on 34th Street, I don't know how well it would be received today. There was an iteration of it that came out, I think, in 1994, but nothing since. And I actually haven't seen that one. I don't know if you have either, but it's um, well-received by several people in our Facebook group. And with these types of themes that are going on, it does make me wonder if it's a movie that would feel overtly cheesy, if it would feel a little bit preachy, or if it does still resonate with us as human beings. Well, I, I've thought the same thing. I, I've wondered when I watched this and also It's a Wonderful Life, how we would receive it if it came out today. And specifically because there is so much, I don't know if I want to use the word hatred, but there's so much negative talk about anything that is remotely Christian that wears its faith on its sleeve. And, you know, this movie doesn't do that, but it is absolutely clearly christian in its themes whether you want to attribute it to religious faith or not it's clear to see and so i wonder if we are too cynical at this point to appreciate something like this i think that there are 
quite a few interesting similarities to what we see here and how I think things would go down today, nearly 80 years later. Chris at one point actually talks about this. He says, that's what I've been fighting against for years, commercialism of Christmas. Look at today. I mean, this is (laughs) – you want to talk about prescient. I mean, if that's the way it was a problem then in that day and age, I mean, here we are nearly a century later, and it is full-blown like that is all Christmas is, right? We are still fighting against that. The more, 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 and it's all about what can we sell? How can we sell off of this? It's just a, an exaggerated, more worldwide thing of, of what Macy's is dealing with in this movie. So in a weird way, I think that that part stands the test of time, and people would be able to understand and, and relate to that. I think that certain themes in this movie would be – trashed online i honestly do things like a mother um, who is wanting to keep her child lie free by not letting her indulge in fantasy just for her own enjoyment i think that that would be an extremely divisive concept in a movie if it came out today with modern day characters there would be all kinds of chatter about what a parent should and shouldn't do in their child's life and how much control a parent should or shouldn't have Um, and i think that it would create a whirlwind of conversation. And then the whole concept of this movie, like putting Santa Claus on the stand, if someone ever claimed to be Santa Claus, that the the ultimate kind of end results of that would be that we would interrogate him in the highest courts of the land to rule as a society on what, this man's chosen identity is, I 100% believe like that is how America would operate today as well, right? That we would do that same thing. And so it's fascinating to me. But because of this, like the th- some of the themes I really feel are so wide reaching and, and have spanned this time period and not become out of touch, but yet focusing so much on having faith and that being a key component, I just don't know how this would be received. And part of it is because I don't have anything to judge it against, Patrick, because there are so few movies that come out that are pure of heart (laughs) these days. There are so few movies that come across with such just – I don't know how to describe it, but this movie doesn't have fighting and it doesn't have cursing and it doesn't have any sort of absolutely cynical takes. Like there are characters that are cynical within its world, but they are not shown to be something that we should emulate or that we should praise. They are definitely shown to be characters who have a problem. Right. Like the fact that we even have this psychologist that is employed by a store. What is that all about? And how do they have the power to send a man to the mental hospital? Like that's one of the things that I don't get about this. Maybe it's something from that era. But I think that that would be so overplayed in the movie in 2019 versus what we see here. And it would change completely the way in which we relate to all the characters. There is something to be said about the fact that this movie could be an allegory. 
And I think if we look at it as an allegory, instead of trying to implant it as a drama or as a comedy, although it has those elements, I think looking at it as an allegory takes some of those whimsical things, those things that are kind of unbelievable, uh, ironically, <laughs> and it allows us to enjoy it for what it is. I mean, there are a lot of things about this movie based on the time period in which it came out that wouldn't fly today. The fact is, Fred Gailey is not going to be hanging out in his apartment with a young girl by himself. That's not going to happen. I watch this every year and I go, nope, 2019, 2020, 2021, that's not going to fly. He is not going to be in his apartment alone with this young girl. Um, you would also not have a maid um, of color necessarily doing what she's doing, although there's no offense taken in that regard. But there's a lot of cultural stuff here that's just not it, – it would not play here. The fact that Fred Gailey <laughs> brushes his teeth and then smokes a cigarette, this is weird. So even probably bedtime rituals may or may not be what we would call normal today. But I think that's okay. And even in regard to the day-to-day -day stuff, a guy like Sawyer, yeah, he doesn't exist in today's world. You might, you wouldn't, I don't know if you'd have a psychologist on staff at a department store. I can't imagine you would. No. And so I think a lot of these characters and a lot of their actions are employed to help further this allegorical narrative. And you're right. If we look at the existence of Santa Claus, it seems like, one, who cares? <laughs> really? I mean, you're going to take him to court? You're At one point, Aaron, uh, this was hilarious. I, I recall Sawyer trying to hunt down Gailey and say, hey, Mr. Macy would just rather put this to bed. We don't need to go to court. We don't want to involve publicity. He goes, huh, publicity. Yeah, I'm going to need a lot of that the whole movie could have shut down right then. He could have said, you know what? We'll just settle. It's all good. We'll let things roll out. Everybody's going to have a Merry Christmas. But the fact is that doesn't happen. And as I watched that, I started thinking, okay, I need to start suspending my disbelief here. I need to start kind of immersing myself in this world of not trying to explain away things. Cause I do that all the time, uh, especially in Christmas movies. I don't know why I do it in Christmas movies because these are the movies that are supposed to be the most, fanciful the most fantastic of any kind of genre in the fact that we are asked to suspend our disbelief just by default and so when you look at a movie like miracle on 34th street i think the challenge there is the fact that you're incorporating real world stuff to try to solve a not real world problem in this case the existence of santa claus and so when you wrap your head around the fact that this really is allegory it's putting faith on trial. It's not putting Chris Kringle on trial. It's putting the idea of, is it okay to believe in something when one person or a thousand people or the rest of the world disagrees with you? And if that's the case, how do you live your life going forward? And I think that's a good question to ask and one that I think the movie asks us, what would it mean if you were the only person that believed this thing and do you, you know, you could, you could take it to a youth group level and say, do you ever feel on trial for your faith? I mean, that's, it's, it's a cheesy question, but it's one that I think in some ways, when we're challenged to take ownership of our beliefs, whatever that is, that's where our faith really deepens. I, I remember thinking 
anytime I get into a, a discussion, a heated discussion about an element of my life that connects to my faith that triggers me, I leave that conversation going, man, I need to know more. I need to really get deep into understanding why the why behind what it is I believe. Otherwise, these conversations become circular. And look, social media is not the place to have these conversations. You and I both know that. But Miracle on 34th Street, I think, gets that that push in understanding the fact that faith is something that's taken seriously inside this narrative. It just happens to be attached to this guy named Chris who claims to be Santa Claus, which, by the way, when it comes to proving that he's Santa Claus, there's nothing about reindeer. We never see him do his thing. He never puts on a suit outside of the store. So really, it all comes down to Fred and his kind of purpose and his strategy, which ends up kind of becoming somewhat of an accident. And so in a lot of ways, that helps to amplify that allegory where this really isn't about proving that one guy is something else, but really more about understanding the value of our, of that faith. Yeah, a hundred percent agree. And that, that's the key. I think what you just said to this entire movie is that it's not about proving a fantasy is real. It really has nothing to do with whether or not this man can or cannot deliver on his promises. Even at the very, very end of the movie, when they're sitting in the house, they are shocked and surprised to find themselves potentially believing that there could be some magic involved here, which shows you that they never really believed that in the first place, probably. It's not about that. It's about having a faith, like you said. What, what does uh, Doris say at one point towards the end about something about if she defines faith? And I always default to the Hebrews <laughs> definition and forget <laughs> what she says. She relates it to common sense uh, in this movie somewhere. And she Faith says, is you know, believing in something when common sense tells you not to. There we go. And it's really only about that concept. And so you're right in pointing out that it could be an analogy and it could be anything that you wanted it to be. It doesn't have to be Santa Claus. It's just a fun, nice, cool, relatable way to tell the story using Santa Claus. It's about whether or not you should be free to believe these things, whether whether somebody tells you you shouldn't or not. And for the most part, what's the harm in believing something when the output of that thing is all positive? There's such a great debate at one point in this movie that I honed in on this viewing. And it was this conversation about insanity that takes place between these two doctors, right? And it's really brief. But I think it's Sawyer and somebody else. And Sawyer calls it um, a delusion for good. Or no, the good. The other doctor says he Sawyer says he has a delusion, and the doctor's like, he has a delusion for good. <laughs> like, what's the problem with that? And he tells him he says he doesn't need to be institutionalized because he only wants to be cheery and helpful. And the other guy, Sawyer, the villain of this movie, if you would, the only one that we really have to latch onto in that regard, claims that Chris would become violent if challenged about his identity. And it's intriguing to me because there's a reality there as well, because we have seen across history that people have had a tendency to become violent when challenged on their faith. And 
even when that faith is something that is going to have a positive output, like in the case of Chris Kringle. Even Chris ultimately falls into this trap, whether he's goaded or not, and bops him on the head with his umbrella, right? He resorts to a physical act, and and some would call it violence, but he does do that thing. And it's intriguing to me because really we are putting it on trial but the reason that it's being defended so strongly is, I think, because of the output of that faith. If the faith was in something that was going to have a harmful effect on the world or on people, it wouldn't be something worth defending as much, in my opinion. For sure. And I think that's where you know our faith as, as Jesus followers kind of gets unhinged because historically— the output of our faith has negative consequences. It's persecution, it's judgment. It's these things that become characteristics of what the modern day Christian is. The political stereotype about the evangelist is one of those things that doesn't have a positive connotation. And the fact is, Aaron, I mean, Chris didn't get violent because his delusion, quote unquote, was challenged. He got he got mad because someone he cared about was getting hurt. And I love the fact that he tells Sawyer, I have a lot of respect for those that practice psychology, but you are not one of them because you are taking it and manipulating it. And I love the fact that Chris is able to have this almost balance of saying, look, you can believe in me or not, but the fact is there are people out there who I absolutely respect for the scientific side of of living. And when you talk about the the doctor, I can't remember his name either, who's the guy who studies geriatrics, he who who says that Chris's illusion delusion is for good, he compares him to this guy in New York who believes he's a Russian prince. And he says for years he's believed that and nobody's been able to shake his story. But is he violent? Is he Is he insane? No. He runs a successful restaurant and is a highly respected citizen. What I think is interesting about Chris and the belief in him is that it's not just that his output is good. It's that it has these ramifications that can change people's lives. When he connects with individuals like like Fred, who I think is probably one of my favorite just minor characters in this movie. Mine too. Uh, Why I'm for his <laughs> for his <laughs> if only for his accent, you know, trauma on a floor when he's talking about the tra- this is I mean, anytime we're throwing something away, my wife says just trolling on a floor. Um, everything that Chris does is for the greater good. It's for the good of someone else. Uh, the way he interacts with Alfred. Um, obviously, the way in which he connects with Susan, his love for Doris, even the way he connects with with Fred, it seems like he wants the best for everyone. The whole strategy that he implements unbeknownst to Macy about sending someone to other stores, it's like he has this thing in him that says, I want the best for other people. He has this altruism that just is implied. And it's intentional. He doesn't have to try to be Santa Claus. He doesn't have to try to be this good person. He is, and everything that comes out of him is a result of that. 
you're absolutely right. And and part of that is that there is not a bigger plan. Okay. He tells someone early on the film, he says, seems we're all so busy. Christmas and I are getting lost in the shuffle. Christmas isn't just a day. It's a state of mind. It's about the output. Like you said, it's about the influence on people's lives. It's about what humans can do for other humans for good. And his goal was never to put into place a policy change for Macy's. That's the kicker. His goal was to assist one person in helping achieve something or helping get them something that would make them or bring them happiness during this time of their life. Does it ultimately result in a bigger effect for many people? In this case, it does. Of course, there's all kinds of questionable reasons why that comes to be. But from his perspective, he's doing one thing to help one person. And it it's like a trickle effect, right? And it spreads. And that's awesome because it's it almost makes me think of like one good deed deserves another or pay it forward. Like you, you can you can feel it just expanding when people do good things for one another. Absolutely. And there's this element of disciple making right here, if we're going to be blunt about it, which is incredibly significant. I mean, the influence that he has on on Fred beyond just I mean, Fred doesn't believe it. Here's the thing. I'm just I'm blown away with the fact that Fred Gailey, who is like in the corner, doesn't believe really either that. He is there, and, and not even to make money, but he sees he sees Chris as a noble cause, not as someone to feel sorry for, but as someone to fight for. Um, I, and, and to me, that's what a lawyer should do. He should fight for his client. I think he sees his cause as a bigger thing. And so at the end of the movie, when they're walking into the house and he goes, maybe I didn't do such a great thing after, I mean... It's that moment where you're going, oh my gosh, did he not believe the whole time? But Aaron, that's that's kind of how we are when it comes to the faith that we have as individuals. It's only really kind of given us the revelation when it's challenged and kind of proven to us in these moments. But I think what Fred represents is what it means to be a human being, which is walking forward with what you see and filling in the gaps with what you're sort of believing here and there. And when we see Chris interact with Fred, Fred influences Doris, and Doris um, is influenced by Susan and vice versa. There's this kind of reciprocal stuff that's going on over this whole cast. Even the doctor, even the geriatric specialist, when he walks in and he sees, I guess that's an x-ray machine? It looks like a paper, uh, a paper thing or something, something that makes uh, newspapers. I've never seen an x-ray machine that you know, looks like that. But he says, the state uh, proved you to be Santa Claus, and I have to say I agree with him. Even he has a little crisis of faith, a little moment of faith there. So sometimes you have to have the miracle in order to reinforce the belief. And you know what? That happens in the book of John. You know, the miracle happens and then somebody believes. The miracle happens and somebody believes. In other cases, it's the opposite of that. Somebody believes and then a miracle happens. But the truth is, when we see that influence play out, I'd like to believe if the the lives of these characters 
went forward, they would have an equal amount of influence on the people that they came into contact with as a result of meeting Chris, not as a result of believing in Santa Claus, as a result of meeting Chris. And that's the thing about Miracle on 34th Street. It's about Chris. It's not about Santa Claus. It's about Chris and about believing in him and about believing what he stands for, which is that state of mind that Christmas is. And what Doris tells Susan at the end when Susan is finding her own faith wavering because she didn't get the house. And Doris tells her it's kindness and joy and love and, quote, all the other intangibles. And that's the beauty of how this this film represents faith to me is because characters in this movie make a choice. And we talked about this in Marriage Story episode where I was very clear and blunt about my feelings that love is a choice that you make every single day. It's not just some romantic feeling. It is a decision that you wake up and say, I am going to love this person. And faith is very similar. I am going to choose to have faith. I don't feel it, Patrick, just like I don't have that romantic spark inside me for faith necessarily. But I believe because I am deciding to believe. That is the absolute definition of what faith is. And so I love how it's shown in these characters because to me, you can't have faith represented in a movie fictionally or in real life unless you see the doubt. It, the, the two are hand in hand. And all of these characters have some doubt. But like you said, Fred is betting on the person of Chris, the goodness of Chris, the fact that Chris has done nothing but be an amazing human being when he came into these lives. And so why not put all your chips in on him, right? And I love it. I love how good he is. And that's part of why I think that it's so, would be so reserved or blah, blah, blah. It would be received very differently today is because we don't have characters that are this good in our movies very often anymore. This character that says, you know what? I'm going to risk my entire career before it even gets a chance to take off for this one guy and what he represents. We just don't see that hardly ever. You know what I mean? And, and I love it. I love the way that the characters are in this movie. I think that they're perfectly constructed to show us that dichotomy between belief with Doris being such a non-believer in the beginning of the film. Well, that's the thing is you look at Doris and Fred as a point-to-counterpoint point relationship. She's the realist. He's the optimist. Um, she sees the world in black and white. He sees it with shades of gray. In fact, the very, the very first conversation where he's talking to her. Well, in the original movie, they all see the world in black and white, Patrick. And you're exactly right. Thank you. But he's here all week. <laughs> but the fact is, I think these characters are set up to to give us that early on. And again, it, it's very allegorical. We have someone who, as you mentioned earlier, we would never see someone completely detach the world of imagination and creativity for her daughter. That would just be child abuse in, in today's world. But it plays its part and it 
proves or at least reinforces this idea that that Doris is someone who is she would call herself real a realist we would call her a pessimist and she plays a great opposite to Fred who is more of an an optimist and I think that in some ways that's part of what it means to be a lawyer finding the most creative way that you can to either get somebody off or uh, defend them in a way that they can be acquitted and you see that in lawyer lawyer shows where you have creative ways that and sometimes they're sadistic but there's still creative ways to defend your client and allow him or her to to go free whether or not they're guilty and when you look at that you kind of at least I struggled with wondering if the the story was portraying one as right versus wrong initially we'd think Doris needs to lighten up she needs to be a better mom she's the bad guy here but it's worth taking a look at and saying maybe she's not maybe neither of them are necessarily the bad guy or right or wrong that maybe they're both right in their own regard and I wanted to see if you had an answer to that or if you were thinking if any of that kind of came across your mind as you were watching this well it definitely comes across my mind just watching as a parent just so hardcore denies her child the indulgence of an imagination and seeing through Susan that come out in the way that she views the world, especially during the one sequence where I forget who it was talking to her, but it might've been Fred and it might've been Chris, but somebody was telling her a fairy tale and she's just having none of it. She just doesn't believe in that. She doesn't allow herself to do that. And it's a debate that is had in America and families to this day, right? Like, do you, tell your kids the truth. And frankly, I'm glad that I don't have young children because at this point in my life, I think that I would really be challenged with this question personally as to what it is that we are teaching our kids by allowing them to believe that this mysterious magical figure has given them something for free. You know, there's a belief out there that, you know, people will very understandably say, you know, why don't you want to have your child know that it's you who has, you know, given this thing to them or has have done these acts? Why are we putting all of this on this fake thing? Now, there can be a purpose to that if it's spun in a much more, you know, related to a Christian value system and something of a belief in a, a, a higher being of a God of God, right? If you're going to use that as a way of teaching your kid, completely different story, but that's not how it usually takes place. And so part of me really found myself kind of agreeing with Doris here and thinking she's a good mom. She is not denying her child, uh, indulgences, not denying her child, uh, the the joys of life necessarily she's just not lying to her she's telling her the truth and i think that what i get out of this is that there 
is a balance that can be had somewhere in between, right? Where maybe we don't need to fully pretend that things exist that don't exist, but that we can have fun with more fairy tale like situations while also not letting ourselves put too much value in them. I guess if that makes sense, what we don't want to see is Susan grow up being completely disappointed if Santa doesn't do things for her. And that's what we end up seeing, right? We see, and that's what kids go through all the time. Like, Oh, you know, I asked Santa for this toy and didn't get it. So now mom and dad have to say, well, you know, Santa couldn't afford the iPad, Johnny. (laughs) So you get this Etch-a-Sketch, you know, and, (laughs) and that's how we go through with this. And so it's a really important lesson that that I think can be used on faith. And if anything, that's what I pull out of this whole movie in general, is it's something that families can use with their children to explore this concept um, as well. But I, I think that there is definitely something to be said for Doris's approach. Um, I think that likewise, there's an equal, um, I think you can appreciate Doris's approach and being honest with Susan and still appreciate her flip in the end, I, I guess is how I would say it. When she then chooses to support her daughter's newfound faith in Santa Claus by uplifting her in that moment and by joining in with her because she's doing it for the right reasons. And so there's nuance there that doesn't necessarily exist when we have this conversation at home about just do we tell our kids saying that Santa exists or not exists? Where I think the movie does really well is the fact that at the end we have Susan not being validated that she believes in Santa Claus by Doris, but the fact that her faith is validated. He is real. He is real. Uh, not Israel, not like the, the country. Um, but she says he is, he does exist. And, it, you know, the result of that comes, you know, the, the effect of that is that she gets a new house, uh, which take that for what you will. <laughs> but this is a challenge that I've had that my wife and I have had with, with our son. I have noticed uh, early on, just as a quick story, we decided that we weren't going to encourage the belief in Santa Claus. We weren't going to have presents from Santa under the tree. We weren't going to talk about being good and this type of stuff. And there are no letters. So all the practical stuff, the things that connect to Santa Claus, uh, we don't participate in. And last year, Carson asked us on a number of occasions, is Santa real? Man, that's a fantastic question. And that's exactly what we told him. We said, that's a great question, Carson. And our response was, what do you think? And to me, Aaron, that's an element of faith that I think Miracle on 34th Street is trying to pull out. It's not an act of believing in Santa Claus or not. It's the question of giving the person ownership to ask for themselves. This year, my son is vehemently not a believer in Santa Claus. He says he will go around singing Santa's not real to the tune of Jingle Bells in some ways. I don't know where he gets that. But whatever he believes, 
it's going to be him because when it comes to faith, it's a choice that we make. It's not a choice that's thrust upon us. And this is where I think Doris's flaw is, is that while I adamantly agree that you should be real with your children, to deny them the ability to imagine, to deny them the ability to choose what's real and what's not, even though you know, feels a little bit authoritative to an extent of being somewhat Hitler-esque, where you're forcing them to believe what you believe, which is not giving them the choice to have a faith in something. And I think one of the one of the great moments that I saw kind of change that is when Chris is talking to Susan before dinner and she's talking about how the fact that she went down to the basement and all the other kids were playing zoo and the zookeeper said, what kind of animal are you? And she says, I'm not an animal, I'm a girl. And he said, be gone. And she does that terrible, terrible, terrible impression of a awful. muffin. It's awful. It's a, it's a grating. It's, it's just ridiculous. But the, the exercise in using your imagination, I think, was a box that was open for her to kind of be exposed to the fact that the world isn't just about truth and lies that imagination in and of itself is a very important thing because it allows us a way to process the world in a somewhat healthy way when we talk about using our imagination it's what gives us great stories aaron it's why chris nolan is one of our favorite writer directors because he uses his imagination and his imagination pulls from real world stuff and stuff that's in fairy tales. Same thing with Stanley Kubrick and, and Shinkai. These are, these are creative people that have pulled the world around them together to form and create stories that when we watch these things play out, we know they're not real. We know that, that characters like Murph don't necessarily exist in real life, but there are people that possess those kind of character traits and that space travel is real but we've never gone to jupiter and we've never seen the crazy things that uh hal 9000 has seen and that dave has seen but the fact is there's a combination of the real and the imaginative that allows us to kind of understand the world in which we live in and i think that when it comes to our faith we have to have that we have to have a level of imagination so that we can kind of grasp the things that we can't necessarily conceive in our in our brains that we can't actually touch and you know you look at the psalms it's all poetry there's imagery it's ripe with imagery all throughout that proverbs is the same way and so there's a reason why that exists it's not just because poetry is cool or the proverbs are, are are neat and that the song of solomon's romantic it's that it helps capture the spirit of what these people are trying to trying to say. And I think that if you didn't have that, if you didn't have an imaginative spirit, you wouldn't be able to, to grasp those things. And that's where I think Susan starts, uh, starts, starts getting it and where Doris is influenced in the fact that she says, you know what, maybe I have been a little too strict with my daughter that I'm not just denying her lies, I'm giving her the truth, but I'm not giving her the ability to actually choose what it is that that is truth and to me that's it's not that's not freedom (laughs) and we need to have that freedom when it comes to 
when it comes to our faith. Well, the end of the film, uh, it shows us that Susan gets what she wants for Christmas. Eventually. (laughs) She has this house, and she's driving down this uh, residential road with uh, Uncle Fred. I guess she's calling him Uncle now. And her mom, she goes, I believe, I believe. It's silly, but I believe. And she sees this house, and she gets uber excited about it. And I think that an ending like this may rub people the wrong way because it feels a little too much, like a little nice bow wrapping up and everyone lives happily ever after. And at the very least, I think it could be translated that if you believe hard enough, if you wish long enough, eventually your dreams will come true and you'll get exactly what you want. Kind of like Willy Wonka when he says, remember what happened to the kid who who wanted all this stuff, he actually got it. He lived happily ever after. Um, you know, from a realist, from a cynical point of view, somebody would say, well, that's crap because <laughs> that never happens or that doesn't happen to me. And I, I, I kind of sat with this for a little bit and I asked myself, does this work? Is this a good end to a movie? It's a good end to a fairy tale. It's a good end, I guess, to an allegory. But for a movie like this that talks about our faith, does it validate what the movie is saying about faith? Yes. <laughs> and no. <laughs> I mean, it's all in how you want to interpret it. It's kind of like the Bible. <laughs> so if you want to believe, here's, here's what I believe. I'll say this. If we're taking this as an analogy in so many ways for God, and a faith in a religious sense. Sometimes my faith is going to be paid off and I'm going to see a fruit. I'm going to see a gift. And Patrick, I might walk into a house. It could happen. It absolutely could happen. I might win the lottery. And I can choose to attribute that to a faith-based Right. I had faith. And so then I got this. Sometimes things just happen, though, and they're not necessarily related to something that we are receiving as a gift. (laughs) And it's a very difficult thing to always wrap your head around. Um, I, I talk about this all the time with people, how. I found more and more that we always want to attribute all the good things in our lives to God or whatever it is that we have faith in. So thank you, God, for allowing me to get this new job. Thank you, God, for this great blessing. Well, you know how many crappy things happen to me between getting good jobs, Patrick? I don't say thank you, God, for allowing me to get in this car wreck this morning. (laughs) And it's an interesting thing, right? Like we want to give credit to the thing that we have faith in for the beneficial result that we are happy about. But we then pretend that that doesn't exist or we don't have any sort of, we don't, we don't have any, I don't know. We just don't put any weight on that person or that thing when things don't go our way. And so I see this as just kind of resembling 
a possible thing that could happen. I don't think the movie is trying to preach. I don't think the movie is saying, and yes, this actually was Santa Claus zing. I think it's just furthering the ambiguity of how these characters live going forward. And it's letting them live in a place of faith and of doubt and of question and of deciding what they want to attribute these things to. And ultimately, none of that matters. What really matters the most is what they're going to do with that and how they're going to live their lives and how they're going to impact other people going forward. And if they want to take it as Santa Claus is real, so be it. <laughs> you know, I don't think that that undoes at all what the film is saying. I agree. And something interesting that said that kind of persuaded me in your line of thinking was near the end when Susan is disappointed and Chris says, I don't suppose you'll want to talk to me. And I think, uh, who is it? Doris says, yeah, something about a present. She goes, no, I, yeah, I tried and I tried for a long time and I may be right ultimately, but this viewing, I was changed a little bit for a long time. I thought, Oh, Santa's having his way with her. It's going to be a surprise. You know, she's going to, he's going to get his zinger and you know, he's got the, the house waiting because he gave them the directions to get there. But the fact is I wanted to believe on this viewing that he really didn't. He really, he wasn't Santa. Okay. That he had this ability to persuade and change people and make people think differently and understand the value of believing in something when common sense tells you not to enough that coincidentally they're going down this road and they see this house that she wanted. And the fact is there was a self-fulfilling prophecy with her. I mean, she was obsessed with this house and it just so happened to look like the one that she wanted why it was unlocked. I don't know what the deal was there. And, you know, I think the movie tries to kind of hint at the fact that Chris had something to do with it with regard to the the cane that was sitting there. But the fact is, Aaron, I'd like to believe that faith is a holistic approach to living, that we can't say that faith is a positive thing or faith is a negative thing because people have faith in negativity. And these are the folks that live that self-fulfilling prophecy like I'm always going to be this or I'm never going to be that. I mean, there's a faith that lives in those kinds of statements, whether positive or negative. But as you mentioned, we can't just believe from our Christian standpoint that when something happens that's good, it must be God. And when something happens that's bad, it must be our fault. No, I think the fact is our faith is embedded in all those decisions that we make and all those outcomes that come as a result of those decisions because we have the freedom to choose. We have the freedom to live by faith and have it ebb and flow and that our faith goes up and down and up and down. And the truth is, yes, I'm absolutely grateful for the job that I have and the wife and family that I have. And you know what? In hindsight, I'm actually grateful for my running accident because of everything that came from it. But in that same breath, I can also say that it was probably one of the most unbearable times of my life. 
So to be able to say that I'm thankful for something that actually gave me that much pain, I think a lot of people can can say that, not only because they learn from it, but because they're better people because of it. And that's where I think the heart of faith is, is that it's a complete, it's not a partial approach to how we live or adding character traits to only the positive things that we experience or the negative things, but it's both. It's saying that my faith doesn't necessarily get redefined based on my circumstances. It's influenced by my circumstances, whatever those are. And I think that for Susan, had she not gotten that house, I think her faith would have been validated some other way because she, you know, they could have passed that house and she could have continued to say, I believe, I believe it's silly, but I believe, you know, I think she was having her mind changed. And over time, I think even if she hadn't gotten that house, something would have happened or she would have had an aha moment or Maybe she would have just gradually gotten to that place of saying, you know what? It was never about the house. It was about the fact that I needed to get beyond a it's truth or it's not and and get towards something like, hey, it could happen. I completely agree with you. I mean, I think that that is absolutely correct. And, you know, ultimately, it if he's not Santa Claus, I'm fine with that. because persuasion and charisma and the ability to change people's lives. It almost plays out like sort of a bit of a commentary on our own lying to our children about Santa Claus. If a man is lying about being Santa Claus in order to get us to have faith in something, it's kind of a weird little paradox there. But um, I, I, I'm good either way with it, but I love your explanation there. Well, let's get into our connecting points and you can explain to me something else that you love. All right. Well, I think we both picked the exact same connecting point again this week. Am I right in believing that? Your faith is correct. You believe and it is true. And it's hard not to choose this, Patrick. You know, I'll admit the entirety of the courtroom sequence was almost my pick just because I think it is so cool and so creative in the way that Fred uses public opinion to validate the existence of this man. It is just such a clever writing. This won an Oscar for writing. Uh, It actually won two because for some reason there was like a best story and best screenplay, I think uh, Oscar back in the day. And so I'm not surprised because the courtroom sequences always fascinate me in this movie. Uh, and I just love the way that it, the the whole thing kind of plays out with the judge being caught in this whirlwind of like, what do I do? I've got to worry about my own self, just like Macy's worried about his own self throughout the film. And the judge has got to make that decision. And ultimately it's like, well, okay. Um, and you, and the fact that Fred is playing against all of that, it's just, it's such a close number second for me, but Emotionally speaking, Susan's letter to Chris at the end, she writes this letter when she finds out that he is sad. And it says, Dear Mr. Kringle, my mother says you are sad. Now I am writing to you because I want you to be happy again and to tell you that I believe all you told me and everything will turn out fine. I even believe you will get me the present I asked for. I hope you are not sad. Yours truly. Susan. And I love the little addition because she's a child, Patrick, and it wouldn't honestly have felt right without that. It's 
really sweet. But when you put yourself into the mind of a child, the child's going to say, and I believe you're going to give me that cool present I want. But what really makes this a zinger for me is not just Susan's belief, but when Doris reads it and then writes at the bottom of the letter, I believe in you too, Doris. The fact that this belief and validation in who he says he is is now coming from Susan and Doris, these people who he desires for them to believe in him more than anybody in this stupid courtroom, right? It's a great play on tradition, Patrick, because they are literally writing a letter to Santa Claus. But instead of asking for something, they're giving him something that he wants and cheering him up. And it just makes my heart like jump out of my chest when I see this come on screen. And the fact that it plays into that whole courtroom sequence that I love so much, that whole idea by cleverly having a dual purpose, unintentionally speaking, of establishing an address, it's an accidental brilliant moment. Um, and I consider it a reward for showing their faith. I absolutely agree with that. I think that the the facial expression that we see him, uh, we see Chris, the next scene, reading the letter, and we see Fred saying, sorry, Chris, I did all I could. And he goes, you know what? It's okay. This means more to me than anything else. Because you're right. Earlier on in the movie, he said, I'm looking at Doris and Susan as sort of a microcosm of this whole thing. If I can convince them, then there's probably hope for this world. To me, that is the optimist against the pessimist right there. And so to get that letter, to have that gift given to Santa, or to give that to him, really does encapsulate, I think, that his mission was a success. If he had gotten committed, then I think he would have been okay, Aaron. I think he would have been in a place where, one, he couldn't deliver toys, which proves that he's not Santa Claus, but that wasn't the point. But the truth is that he found a way to influence two people who otherwise wouldn't have been able to have been gotten through to. And I think the fact that we got that letter and that the fact that Doris writes at the very end, I believe in you too, was the big exclamation point. I mean, we were kind of convinced already that Susan was that way, but to see Doris finally give to that, I think was pretty fantastic. So yes, my connecting point as well. Well, that officially wraps a bow around this edition of Feel and Film. We hope you guys have enjoyed this and uh, hope that you continue to listen because we have a lot of content coming up for you over the next several weeks, including our coverage of Bombshell, Star Wars, The Rise of Skywalker, Little Women, as well as our monthly donor pick, which has officially been selected, and it is Die Hard. Aaron, thank you so much for another great conversation, my friend, and we will talk soon. Hey everyone, thanks again for listening. If you enjoy the show, we'd love to hear from you. You can leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you're listening. These help increase visibility for the show and grow our community of listeners like you. We also invite you to connect with us further by joining our ever-growing Facebook discussion group. A link to that is in the show notes, or you can just search on Facebook and find us that way. If you'd like to continue the conversation with me, you can follow the show on Twitter, at Film or connect with me in the Facebook group. I'm 
very active in both places and would love to chat. And if you want to connect with me, you can find me at Shoeless Patch on both Facebook and Twitter. Be sure to tag me in any comments so that I'll be notified and not miss you. Once again, thank you for listening. We'll be back soon. Until then, stay positive. And keep feeling filled.